word. I'm going to say the word. In the beginning was the word. What? Word. 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 Was the word. From the KJZZ Studios in Phoenix, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. Coming up on Word. As we close out April, National Poetry Month may be coming to an end, but the powerful wordplay goes on, and our guests contribute some verses. We head out to Albuquerque, New Mexico on the virtual road for some beat-inspired poetry. Another flash, another shield, another streak across galactic solitude of glory collapsed upon itself. Plus, we celebrate the new release of the Diné Reader, an anthology of Native American literature, and hear from some Native American poets. That's something that's very important to me, and that's something that I really want to do, learning to write in the language. And we explore how studying and writing poetry can give students agency to find their voices amid a mainstream entrenched system that often shows them their words and lives don't matter. Your voice has power, and if you know how to use it and you know how to use words well, you can move people in ways that you never thought were possible, regardless of your age. But first... Susan Nguyen is a Vietnamese-American and an MFA graduate of ASU. Her forthcoming work, Dear Diaspora, is the winner of the Prairie Schooner Book Prize in Poetry. Surprisingly, Susan didn't begin her love for poetry until her university years. There was a long stretch of time where I honestly thought I didn't like poetry. I've been writing for as long as I can remember, but Growing up, I assumed that meant I was going to grow up to be a novelist because that was the kind of text I was reading when I was much younger. I didn't spend too much time with poetry. And I remember even in high school, struggling to, to read and understand and analyze poems. And I think that was the case in the beginning of college as well. It wasn't really until I took an intro to creative writing class. You know, I had a little bit of poetry, fiction and nonfiction. I realized of all the genres that poetry, although... I still kind of struggle to analyze and understand it. And I came to realize that that's okay. You can read a poem and not totally understand it the first time. You know, it often takes time to delve into a poem. That was the first time I really tried writing poetry seriously. And I realized for me, I think it was, I don't want to say the easiest, but maybe the closest way for me in terms of the way I was already thinking and the best way for me to articulate and express what I wanted to express. But it took quite a long time between the first time I read a poem all the way up till maybe halfway through college when I began writing poetry a little bit more seriously. Yeah, I was uh, a pretty avid reader at a young age. And then I think, to be quite honest, in late junior high school into high school, I got kind of deep into athletics. And I think that cut into some of my reading time. I was still a fan, though. Uh, I had a really good English teacher in 11th grade. And poetry was a big piece of the class. And I sort of dabbled around in in writing some things, but I didn't get serious uh, as well about writing poetry until college. I had always been a fan of crossword puzzles, word search kinds of things. And and I think that's what attracted me to poetry was wordplay. You kind of indicated that it takes a good reader to be a good poet, though, right? Reader of all genres. Yeah, definitely. I think (laughs) I'm not a a very patient person, so it took me a while to realize that, okay, just because I read a poem, I don't immediately understand it. It doesn't, it's not a bad thing. But I think for me, I liked being good at things. So because I wasn't (laughs) at first, I kind of got frustrated. I was like, okay, this is not for me. You know, it's it's just not for me. I'm going to move on and and go to fiction or whatever it is. But it does take time and and being a good reader. And like you said, it means 
reading widely. And that's why I think I spent a lot of time in college doing. And luckily I had some great professors and mentors who introduced me to a wide range of, um, of poets. And I think also realizing that not all poems or all poets like is, is going to be my favorite. And that's totally fine too. This is an exciting year in so many ways. I mean, we are all looking forward to getting out and about more frequently as this vaccine rollout continues. I think there will still be things that have changed maybe forever. You have a really exciting aspect of your publishing life that's going to be released in September, and this is your book, Dear Diaspora. I guess first off, I wonder if we could sort of accept the definition of diaspora. I mean, in my mind, the word sort of means a forced displacement of a group of people from a certain area. This could be for many reasons, colonialism, it could be war, famine, numerous things. Mm-hmm. But it, it is also just I think in some ways become a term that can simply mean a person who identifies with a homeland but doesn't live in that homeland. What is your thinking on what diaspora means to you and how you apply it in this book, Dear Diaspora? That's a really great question. Um, I think definitely, honestly, all the the elements you've already mentioned. I think for me, to go back a little bit, I, I spent a lot of my life, you know, in Virginia suburbs growing up, really pushing away my Vietnamese identity and, and culture and heritage. Growing up, there's a lot of probably embarrassment and, and shame there and just being different um, and not really spending time to learn or question kind of how I, I how I came to be here. And it's kind of painful to say that now, but I do think it's important to say, considering all the, the violence that my community is currently right. um, facing. And I think I've been seeing a lot of people in my community sharing kind of the same feelings, experiences I've had kind of growing up feeling that way and and pushing that part of their identity away. So I think there was that element growing up and it wasn't until maybe partway through college where I kind of stopped to question, you know, the cognitive dissonance I was feeling in terms of, okay, there's a big part of myself I don't understand. And that's, that's starting to kind of impact me. Right. And I think when I came to the MFA, it wasn't my intent to, further explore that necessarily, but because I was spending a lot of time writing and, and researching, that's where my writing ended up going. And I think sure. this collection um, was really a chance for me to further explore what it meant for me to be part of the Vietnamese diaspora and understand more those elements of myself. You know, the title of my book, Dear Diaspora, that kind of came to be because I had written a series of poems um, where I was writing directly to the diaspora. And those appear in my, my collection throughout. I think there's four or five of them. And I think it was an important decision for me just to be able to directly speak to something that, you know, just the term, right, is pretty abstract. Um, yeah, right. But to place myself within it and better understand my personal experiences, I can't speak for anyone else. Um, I wanted to be able to directly speak to that and make it more tangible for myself to even be able to write about it. So it's it's definitely been a long journey from not liking poetry, pushing this part of my identity away to <laughs> where I am today with this, um, with this book. And when I was writing those poems, you know, I didn't even know they would appear in what eventually became my my collection, but it, it just made sense. When I was a kid in elementary school, it was a pretty progressive area for the state that I was in. Very multicultural. My best friend, actually, Tuan Chow, was Vietnamese, and he and his family escaped literally on a donut truck out of Vietnam to come over to the U.S. And it was a situation where it was an extended family living in the house. So he had an auntie and uh, his grandparents, um, his mother's parents lived there along with him. Did you grow up in that kind of environment? Did you have extended family living with you? 
at one point, yeah, I was living with my aunt, uncle and, and extended family before we moved out into our own place. But yeah, we had extended family in Virginia and also in other states a little bit further away as well. And the reason I asked that question is because you had hinted that you felt shame for not really investigating your Vietnamese heritage before. Why do you think that you did not investigate that? Were you not encouraged to? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I wouldn't say I wasn't encouraged to. I think in terms of day-to-day life, right? In terms of like family members just having a job, getting through the day-to-day and, and me just trying to do well in school and wanting to fit in, you know? I think mm-hmm. right. there was maybe less focus or emphasis on the long term of like maybe talking about generational stories, you know, whether parents or elders didn't want to speak to that, right? That requires energy when really the day-to-day is just about getting through it and surviving and being able to grow and acclimate. So I don't think I put much time and thought into, okay, if I'm trying to, to be quite honest, assimilate, right? What am I losing? And how would I know that anyway, as a, as a child at that point? Well, I wondered, Susan, if you would take us out with a brief poem of your own. And if you'll start with the title as well, that'd be great. Thank you. The first language. One. Behind the church, we ran through labyrinths of poplar and hickory, dirt paths cutting through ravines in the backs of suburban homes, their brick patios and striped furniture. In the green light of summer, we loved getting lost, how we could step into woods and exit in a cul-de-sac eight blocks away, loved it best when tadpoles formed a halo around our toes. Two. Before he disappeared, my father taught me how to catch tadpoles in my hand. The trick wasn't just to stay still, but to stop breathing. He caught dozens like this, knees bent and pant legs folded, his face inches above the creek. He taught me that our first language was named after tadpoles, the way they moved through water, a knife dissecting the stratosphere, a voice cutting quiet. Three. My third favorite memory of him is walking hand in hand on two-lane roads, identifying Virginia trees. In one pocket, a zodiac sign lighter, a button for mother's favorite blouse. In the other, acorns for burying. I can still identify the red oaks. Four. Today the tadpoles flow through my fingers like an egg yolk, and my impulse is to cradle one in my mouth. The tadpole swims circles and my tongue follows, mapping its movement before spitting. That's wonderful. One of the things that I love about that poem, apart from the beauty of the nature as you describe it, is how the tadpoles sort of swim through as I'm listening Mm -hmm. to it. And then also how the image of your father continues. So it's like you're starting out describing about tadpoles and then your father comes into play and then the father sort of becomes the center of the next section and then you're back to tadpoles again. That's just my off-the-cuff take on that. Was that a conscious decision by you? Or am I way off the mark? <laughs> I would say it was conscious. It's, it's hard for me to talk about my writing after I feel like I finished a poem because there's so much I'm doing without maybe consciously thinking about it. But I think when it comes to choices in the end, that was definitely purposeful. And I took Vietnamese language courses while I was at ASU as a grad student. So I remember at one point learning about, I think, a written language system in Vietnam, like way before currently. And one of the quotes I'd written down was that, the name of that written language system was inspired by or maybe named partially because it looked like like tadpoles. That's what inspired that poem. That's fascinating. Yeah. I had never thought of that when I look at the Vietnamese language uh, in print. But now that you mentioned that, I'm like, yeah. I mean, you just put something together for me that I've always wondered myself. And that is, is sort of the, gosh, I don't know what the word is, maybe the pictographic uh, representation of text itself. 
Well, Susan Newland, I want to thank you so much. You're the author of Dear Diaspora, a book of poetry of your own hand that comes out in September. And Susan, thank you so much for coming to Word. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And before we take a short pause for the cause, we have some pop-up poetry for you. My name is Hunter Hazelton. I'm from Phoenix, Arizona, and I'll be reading a poem from my chapbook, I Never Understood Religion Until I Learned Your Name. The piece is titled Roadside Soliloquy. The I-10 disappears into horizon. Has it found you? I'm still wearing your sweater, if you want to know. When you lied about forever, I arched over the cityscape, said your name to traffic accidents, listened for your voice under sirens, slowed to make sure the carnage was not ours. Fine, I lied when I said goodbye. But what else do you say when you're fighting for a sequel, when the supercut of our love, our kisses are contingent on wires, love inside lines along the highway, disrupted by lightning or knotted Nikes, when our voices sound like prayers on a police scanner? I prayed for obeds, believed the sun would someday meet me. No matter how fast I drive, he maintains space, traps us in his amber, and I am taunted with perhaps. See? Every day is like this. I wake and slice the apple. I drink my milk. I take my commute like an anesthetic. Those daily pills to distract from the fact that I'll come home alone. A broken thing. A glass of Cabernet. A glass shattered on the driveway. A dream where you throw me out on those beautiful shards dazzling like stars. I wish on over and over for you to love me or kill me because I am tired of doing it myself. I'm sorry. This is not how the story was supposed to end. Distance remains distance. Those silent stars are just as far. I tried to follow the script. I tried to tell you everything isn't okay. You promised you wouldn't take me home, and here we are. Still, I touch myself. I pray. Dear God, thank you for making me chase something. It reminds me that I'm still here. You can find out a bit more about Hunter Hazelton at our website, word.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region. I'm Jay Ellison, producer of The Moth Radio Hour, and I hope you'll join us for our show here on KJZZ with true personal stories told live without notes to standing room crowds around the world. Moss shows are renowned for the range of human experience they reveal. Moss stories aren't part of the disposable daily information flow. They stick with you. The Moth Radio Hour airs Saturday at 3 on KJZZ. You have your favorites. Oh man, my favorite mug. And maybe it's about time to treat yourself to a new favorite. Mugs and t-shirts for you and the family are at shop.kjzz.org. So what are you waiting for? Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Albuquerque poet P.W. Covington is heavily influenced by the Beat Generation and supplements his income by traveling to read at various open mics, juried competitions, and just for love of being on the road committing poetry. But our pandemic year has been full of potholes. P.W. describes himself as an analog guy in a digital age, hence why we cut up on the phone. Now fully vaccinated, 
He has a new collection called Male Poets that he's looking forward to sharing with live audiences soon. There was some interest in this manuscript back in late 2019, going into 2020. And then um, the pandemic happened. And if you're editing a manuscript while all that happens, I mean, that the, the world turned upside down on us, you know, and um, we had to find uh, some way of, of, of remaining relevant. So I amended the manuscript a little bit, put some of the newer work, stuff that I wrote early on in the pandemic got included in that manuscript as well. So, yeah, we had to make a few changes, but I think we've all had to make a few changes. For sure. Uh, talk to people who agree that the pandemic just shut down their creativity. Some say completely. Is there some type of common thread that you weave through this collection that you're releasing? The new book, Malpo, we worked with Gnashing Teeth Publishing on that, which is a woman-owned and operated company. And um, the small press down in, um, uh, the, the editor-in-chief is down on the coast of Texas, and uh, the editor that worked on my manuscript is up in uh, Iowa, near Ames. And if there's a common thread that runs through this, it's just the energy of the road and the unexpected that awaits us anytime we leave our home. Um, you know, to put it in pandemic terms, you know, I discovered a beautiful thing on the way to the refrigerator the other day. I, I think it's a matter of being in tune to those, to those small things, those small nuances, because they really aren't. Everything that influences our world um, has the ability to change and alter it. And I think it's about giving all those little things their due. I was talking to Natalie Goldberg, who lives in New Mexico as well, and she's heavily influenced by Allen Ginsberg, famous beat poet, and Jack Kerouac, who wrote On the Road, which heavily influenced you, as we've discussed in the past. But one of the things that we talked about was Ginsberg's concept of the notion of holiness, holy this desk that I'm sitting at, holy this window next to me that I can see outside the mountains. Everything has a holy aspect to it. And I think you're right. More of us who are inclined did take time to stop and smell the roses, as it were. It's not a beat sentiment, but as far as Jack Kerouac's influence in your own writing, maybe you could just talk a little bit about what are some of the more influential things. I fell in love with Kerouac uh, when I read Desolation Angels, which is really, it's two manuscripts put together there, but just Again, the, the part of the book where he's spending time up in the forest, uh, working as a, a fire watch for the for the park or for the forest service, in many ways is similar to what we were going through in the pandemic. He was he was literally up a tower in a little cabin um, with only himself to deal with it, and and the little things he notices, you know, everything becomes more important. I've spent time in prison, and when and when you spend time in such a closed environment. Every little thing becomes so important and so noteworthy. Part of that, I think, is probably what we do, our minds do, to entertain themselves. And I think part of that is giving everything its, its justified importance. It, if it wasn't important, it wouldn't be there, wherever you are. As it is National Poetry Month, I wondered if you would take us out, P.W., with a poem of your own. Yeah, this is a piece that's in Male Poet. This is called The Tristan Chord, and it, uh, you know... It was a year to listen to Wagner last year, I think. <laughs> the Tristan Chord. Another lost journal, another lost year, another lost love, another lost 
chance, another night ends, another street over, another tide turns, another road rises, another bed burns, another voice silence, another flash, another shield, another streak across galactic solitude of glory collapsed upon itself melodically like Wagner's Tristan chord over but not yet finished not yet fulfilled, yearning for yellow daffodils from a cold morning crimson sky at dawn, halcyon, and water bongs, rights and wrongs and mobile homes, vagabonds and vagrants, taxi meter, dialectics, F-sharp major in the seventh degree, suntanned, like beer cans, buried on a beach. Nice. For musicians in the audience, you know, are familiar with the Tristan chord, it's made up of the notes F, B, D sharp, and G sharp. And that means something to them, which is probably entirely different <laughs> than the rest of the world. What were you thinking about when you incorporated this concept into a poem? Well, you know, poem, poetry and music are the same thing to me. <laughs> I think... Uh, I, I'm one of those people that's warped that way. I, I, I see I see the flow of words, even if it's on the page. I think, and uh, I think it was an I think it was an NPR program. I think I was listening to performance today, um, one morning as I'm apt to do, and uh, they, they they featured that little piece by Wagner there, and the 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 physical feeling of of unrequited expression, I guess, would be a way of putting Mm -hmm. it, unfinished, because we all live in an unfinished world. And that's one of the great things about our country is that it's unfinished. It can be painful. It can be frustrating. But we get to, we each get to to do our part, but it's never going to be finished. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And the expectation that that cause to mind in our hearts and in our mind is, is a great place to be. It's like a beginner's mind, as uh, as uh, Suzuki Roshi said. Well, also, and I looked this up on Wikipedia, Wagner actually provoked the sound or structure of musical harmony to become more predominant than its function, a notion uh, that would be explored by Debussy and others. And I'm just quoting directly mm-hmm. there from Wikipedia. But the notion that uh, harmony is hopefully what the human condition aspires to right well well you know it's uh we when i was growing up we used the term melting pot we Mm -hmm. don't we don't say that much anymore but yeah everybody gets to chip in and we all get to to create something new and and ultimately different from all of that and i and i think uh it's important to never think that you have a monopoly on the truth or the way things should be or could be. Um, the universe has a plan. We get to we get to contribute to it, but um, at the end of the day, it is it is ours to uh, accept and even enjoy. P. W. Covington, author of the latest collection of poetry called Male Poets, a collection which I personally have endorsed. Take care, stay safe, be well, and. Best of luck out there on the road, my friend. Absolutely, and I'm going to find a way to make it to Phoenix before the end of the year. And before we take another short break, we have some more pop-up poetry for you. Hello, everyone. My name is Austin Davis from Mesa. 
This is a poem I wrote called Phoenix, about the especially dangerous and scary issue of homelessness in Arizona during the summer. Phoenix. This red and orange bird rising from its ashes is my home. In its belly, our coldest days are a summer night to most. Our language is water, ice, gathering inside a Circle K for air conditioning. Two bodies dance in the canal. A shot of Tito's chills the bone. So much skin is washed in the gutters and lakes once we're all asleep. Phoenix, where our rooftops are slanted like wings, but the adobe tile is too smooth to lay on and watch the stars from. Phoenix, where we shake hands, laugh about our shared sweat, admire the shapes of cacti, but never look each other in the eye. Phoenix, where the state capital is two blocks from the tent city, and wealth and poverty are two sides of the same street. A mother waters the tumbleweeds with dark brown urine. Two lovers spoon on the sidewalk. A child thinner than the sycamore branches stares at the sun, but doesn't blink, cry, or look away. We've been caught in the flames for so long, I can only hope we'll still be reborn. You can find out a bit more about Austin Davis at our website, word.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region. Hey, it's Peter Sagal. Some people think that smart speakers are a futuristic surveillance device straight out of George Orwell, constantly monitoring you as you engage in your most private actions and conversations. Well, they are. But did you know they're also a radio? That's right. You can ask your smart speaker to play NPR to hear your local station and all your favorite NPR shows. And it will. It will also report you to the central ministry. But why not enjoy yourself while you still can? KJZZ Spot 127 Youth Media Center is a qualifying charitable tax organization, which means that your contribution is eligible for a dollar-for-dollar credit on your Arizona taxes. Visit taxcredit.spot127.org today and support our award-winning students. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Danae poet Amber McCreary lives in the East Valley. Last year, she released her collection, Electric Deserts. But the pandemic affected her ability to promote it and writing in general, just like so many this past year. One critic framed her book of poems as crisp lines written for native eyes. And we began our recent discussion by talking about the importance of exploring her culture in writing, as she didn't grow up in a traditional Navajo setting. That's actually the most important thing when it comes to my writing. I didn't even really know I was a writer or an artist (laughs) when I started writing and creating zines in my chapbook, but I didn't really know too much about what I wanted to write or how to be a poet, but I knew before I even started all of this that I wanted to write in a way that felt familiar or that Indigenous relatives feel like they could relate to. I think we're fond of saying this rhyme. She was a poet and didn't know it, right? And so <laughs> you kind of discovered that along the way. What types of things about the connection to your family were important? So I didn't grow up traditional. 
my parents are both Christians. So I, I didn't know too much about this like ceremonial side, but I'm now like in process of learning all of those things and learning more about my customs and traditions. And that's kind of through my writing as well as learning that part of my side. But the part of my side that I know is kind of like the overall like mannerisms <laughs> of natives and, you know, just noticing it and taking note of a lot of things that natives do or uh, say. And I, I bring that out in my writing. But as I grow as a writer, I want to like start writing more towards more of my traditions, um, ceremonies. I lived on the island of Guam for many years before I moved here. The last three or four years, there was a, a real refocusing on the indigenous language, which is Chamorro. There was a big push for a revivification of Chamorro. Everything from governmental letterhead down to creating a cartoon, not unlike mm -hmm. Adora the Explorer, but for Chamorro. And so mm -hmm. I, I wonder with this new Diné reader that's out, this Diné anthology, do you see a revivification of the Diné language in your own immediate sphere? Yes, I think so. I think that's something that's very important to me. And I don't plan on living in the Valley my whole life. <laughs> so that's something I really want to do when I move back to Northern Arizona is just like focus on learning the language and then like even learning to write in the language. Even like one of the poets in the Diné anthology is Rex Lee Jim. And I think he's a really great inspiration because he writes poems in Navajo and then he translates them into English. And I feel like a lot of up and coming writers, some of them are, are really good with like writing poems in Navajo. Like for instance, Manny Lowley, he's in the Diné anthology and he's a younger poet. I believe he's in his mid, mid to late 20s and he's already writing poems in Navajo and I'm just like super inspired by that. I think the Diné anthology is a really well thought out book. I'm still in the process of reading it, but I just love that the first half of the book is by elder poets, elder writers, and they're writing about, you know, their experiences from like the 80s or the 90s. And I love reading the older poets because it brings me back to a different time. But at the same time, it, it kind of almost, it lets me see the lens of how my parents probably kind of viewed life or what they were going through at the time. Right. <laughs> and then like the second half of the anthology are younger poets. So up and coming poets like uh, Loli and Byron Aspas and Tatum Begay. It really brings together poets and writers, you know, that are very well established, are kind of <laughs> masters of the Diné writing craft. And then you have up and coming writers as well. So I think it blends really well together. You mentioned earlier that you grew up in a Christian household. And so did your parents make a conscious decision not to speak Diné around the household, if you're comfortable talking about that? Yeah, I am. Uh, so my mom, she actually um, was born and grew up in Los Angeles. And my dad, he he grew up in a very small town um, called Hard Rock, which is just outside of uh, the Hopi Reservation. He knew Navajo before he knew English. So 
I think that he didn't teach my brother and I Navajo because I think he thought it would, you know, it's kind of similar to a lot of other second generation folks <laughs> that, you know, it's easier if you know English and if you only know English. And I think my dad thought that it'd be much easier to assimilate just knowing English and being an English speaker like that it would be easier to navigate the world instead of knowing Diné, I think just based on his experiences with uh, trying to speak Diné and English. And I think it was a lot harder for him to assimilate. And I didn't think that he wanted his kids to go through the same thing. Amber, I wondered if you had a poem of your own that you'd like to take us out with. Sure. I'm going to do an indigenous love poem. And what's the title? The title of it is called Grass God, and it was just published through Mayday magazine. O loins of desert sun, I wait in my village for no one, but here you are, my cloud of summer, my maize god of prickly pollen, paths, seize me. You cousins of grass, wit of luck, Container of kernel, obsessor of history, sex of stock. Raise your corn silk, let it down, be my companion plant. I wilt for no one, except for your leaves to hold. Shade me on the driest of days, and I will keep your home unpaved. From unrelenting teeth, Sorrow's secretion hollows your home. Hair of saguaro seeds. My moon desert solstice. Backbone of my tongue. Rain house of my heart. Swim in the glitter sand waves. It's so beautiful. And I'm struck, of course, by the imagery. But also this notion that your body is made up of Mother Nature. Yeah, and then also the personification of like two people being plants yeah, and like finding companionship in one another. And blooming where you're planted, no matter where that is, right? Which can be difficult in a desert. Yeah. <laughs> well, Amber McCreary, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us about your collection, Electric Deserts. Thanks again so much, Amber. Yeah, thank you. And before we take another short break, we have some more pop-up poetry. This is from Mojave Akamel Odom poet, Natalie Diaz. Postcolonial love poem. I've been taught bloodstones can cure a snake bite, can stop the bleeding. Most people forgot this when the war ended. The war ended depending on which war you mean. Those we started before those millennia ago and onward, those which started me which I lost and won, these ever-blooming wounds. I was built by wage, so I wage love and worse. Always another campaign to march across a desert night for the cannon flash of your pale skin, settling in a silver lagoon of smoke at your breast. I dismount my dark horse, bend to you there, deliver you the hard pull of all my thirsts. I learned drink in a country of drought, 
we pleasure to hurt, leave marks the size of stones, each a cabochon polished by our mouths. I, your lapidary, your lapidary wheel turning green, mottled red, the jaspers of our desires. There are wildflowers in my desert which take up to 20 years to bloom. The seeds sleep like geodes beneath hot feldspar sand until a flash flood bolts the arroyo, lifting them in its copper current, opens them with memory. They remember what their God whispered into their ribs. Wake up and ache for your life. Where your hands have been are diamonds on my shoulders, down my back, thighs. I am your culebra. I am in the dirt for you. Your hips are quartz light and dangerous, two rose-horned rams ascending a soft desert wash before the November sky untethers a hundred-year flood. The desert returns suddenly to its ancient sea. Arise the wild heliotrope, scorpion weed, blue phacelia which hold purple the way a throat can hold the shape of any great hand. Great hands is what she called mine. The rain will eventually come or not. Until then, we touch our bodies like wounds. The war never ended and somehow begins again. That reading of post-colonial love poem by Natalie Diaz was performed in late June of 2019 in celebration of the 50th anniversary of the 1969 Stonewall Rebellion. It was a series of spontaneous demonstrations by members of the LGBTQ community in response to a police raid on the Stonewall Inn in Greenwich Village, New York City. You can find out more about Diaz's work on our website at word.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region. KJZZ is offering new original podcasts like Sun Up. The number one concern we have is their safety. The motives behind this bill, I think, all come from a great place, and I think it's something that we should all look at. People need services, whether that is they need access to Wi-Fi to do their schooling. It's the new morning news podcast from KJZZ News to start your day. Get it on iTunes and at podcasts.kjzz.org. KJZZ's car donation program accepts all types of vehicles that support the programs you rely on. Whether it's a boat, car, truck, or RV, donating is easy and a great way to support your public radio station. Details at cars.kjzz.org. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Poet, education consultant, professor, and owner of Savvy Pen, Dr. Tamika Sanders closes out our month-long celebration of poetry. Her tireless work to provide engaging programs that improve educational outcomes for students incorporates creative approaches like art, writing, and social justice to help students discover their voice. As Arizona and other states grapple with many teachers making an exodus from the profession, I began my discussion with Dr. Sanders wondering how the pandemic has shaped her own teaching and some elements she plans to keep as well as those she might toss out now that in-person instruction has resumed for many. 
Wow. So on two levels, at the lower level where, where I teach with K through 12 schools, and actually that's where I get to go in to do special programming. A lot of that I had to kind of adapt. I'll go in and talk about bullying, about Black History Month, women's history, about I have a dream type things. I do essay contests. Those I had to either stop or do them virtually and switch for the schools that were doing like a virtual platform for their speakers and for their training. That was a a big pivot. One door that it did open up, though, is internationally. Normally, because I have a family, I don't travel out of the country as much as I used to. And so with the virtual world, it has really, really helped me just kind of still go do conferences in London, be in the UK, be in different countries in South America or, or different countries in Africa and actually get to collaborate virtually. So it's like in that way, it's it's really opened the door. And I wasn't I wasn't really looking at those opportunities before and they weren't really as much there. They really wanted you to be there in person. On the college level, I teach with Gateway Community College in Australia, Mountain Community College. I teach public speaking and communication. So those classes are in person, hands-on. And I I believe very much in that hands-on activity, especially with public speaking. It's really easy to, you know, record yourself speaking by yourself and not get nervous versus being in a room full of 20, 30 of your peers and you're speaking, right? Or to complete strangers. So that was one that, but I pivoted. I recorded all of the lectures that I normally um, well, I say discussions, so not lectures, all of the, the discussions I normally have with the classes, the different videos I showed, I kind of animated all of my PowerPoints, my videos to try to make them as interactive as I could saying, okay, you know, if I'm going to have them watch a certain video, describe that video, set it up, have them watch it, and then come back and answer, you know, while you're watching this video, think about X, Y, and Z, Right. But yeah, so I did learn a lot uh, and I had to pivot a lot <laughs> with, with both of those. What you're describing in, the, in that latter part there is almost like social media where people seem to feel much more comfortable putting it mm-hmm. all out there, if as it were. Right. Um, yeah. and, and as far as this particular program is concerned, I mean, yeah, I'm kind of zoomed out like most people, you know, <laughs> but it has provided richer experience, um, not only for just sake of ease for people not having to physically come to a studio, but it's yeah. opened our outreach as well. Being able to book people from Canada, for instance, who have some type of connection, because that's what we try to focus on is connecting people to the literary arts here in Arizona and the region. So sometimes we might cross over into Southern California or into New Mexico, for instance. I want to talk about poetry specifically because Of course, it's National Poetry Month, and an article happened to pop up in my timeline, and this actually is an article that goes back to May of 2015. It was originally published in Salon, but it popped up in my timeline because I shared it during National Poetry Month, and essentially it's talking about political poetry for our times. And I just want to read a little bit here. We shouldn't give up on poetry if only because we need a different public language to describe our country. Conventional public discourse is boring, too familiar and brittle. The spray on tan blather of pundits on CNN, the coup of commerce, the drained template-like rhetoric of political speech. That was written by Alyssa Quartz and she went on to talk about poetry in the public marketplace, if you will, in the space of ideas. And she talked about civic poetry specifically and the poet Claudia Rankin. And again, this is back in 2015. Here in 2021, I've been told by numerous people, 
that they feel that poetry has never been more powerful. And I wondered if you agreed with that and why. You know what? I, I agree and I disagree with some of it just because I don't think poetry ever lost its power. And so, yes, it may be more visible now because we have media that can um, people are using it in commercials. They're using it in movies. They're making movies about it. The access and the awareness of poetry and the acceptance of all the different types and styles, I think because we're global now, because of the internet, that is what's making it more visible, but it's always been powerful, always from the Watts poet or Gil Scott Heron, you know, doing the poem kind of poem slash song about the revolution will not be televised. Right. Um, the last poets with Umar Ben Hassan, you know, talking about different things. It's always been there and it's always been tied in political poetry with movements, just like art, um, whether it's it's painting, it's sculptures, it's singing, it's poetry. They're usually tied together with social movements. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I know one of the projects that Savvy Penn and you work on, uh, at least with the city of Phoenix, was developing a writing course for aspiring authors called Discovering Your Voice. And I'm assuming that you implement poetry as well as other types of literature in that curricula. Tell me a little bit about that program and how you might specifically use poetry to help develop someone else's voice. Because I think in a lot of ways, the form of poetry is often more accessible than obviously a novel just because of the amount of information. And you were right. What's so funny is that program came out of it was like a summer program that I was doing with the city of Phoenix and with Rod Ambrose. And it grew because there was a just for a couple of months, we were, I was going to be working with various ages of students to write kind of, I think it was like um, something about me. It was like the me book or the me poem. It was something like that, that they got all of these different ideas from, but I was helping them write their different stories. And then we worked together as a group to turn their work into an actual show. And that was held at the Orpheum Theater. And this was years ago. And out of that, I saw the power. I saw lots of little boys, little girls, people thinking, ah, poetry you know, because they were so used to poetry like Shakespeare, poetry, and and I'm going to say this with all due respect, old dead white men, people that didn't look like them, that didn't look like they came from their neighborhood, didn't speak to the things that they were going through. And I was able to bring them in poems from Nikki Giovanni and Audre Lorde and Langston Hughes and all of these just amazing poets that felt like them, that looked like them, that asked the questions that they were asking. And it was many years before, right? It made them think of poetry as like, not to something that belonged to old dead white man, but it's something that belonged to everyone. And it was a way of telling their story. And so that's why I ended up calling out of that. I built my workshop and that's why I called it discovering your voice, because through that summer program, I saw these youth from all the way from ages like six to about 17, just seeing the light bulb go off when they realized the power of the words and that when they spoke them and they spoke their truth, other people listened. It changed people and it gave them a voice to say things that otherwise people probably wouldn't listen to. That's exactly what Discovering Your Voice does. We look at hip hop. We compare some of the hip hop lyrics to some of those of like the different Shakespeare, just looking at rhyme and rhythm and flow. We do storytelling. So looking at the art of storytelling, what is it? Also looking at poetry is just for poetry, but also the social commentary behind um, poetry and literature, literary content period. So from stories to essays to 
just so many things in that. And then at the end of that, they actually do kind of like a collective open mic, but they also have a book of work that they're creating all the way along each section of the program that I put together at the end, like a little compilation of all the students work together. So they also have something to to take away after this to go like, wow, I made this and look what we did together. So I, I love, absolutely love that program, but it was born out of that idea that your voice has power. And if you know how to use it and you know how to use words well, you can move people in ways that you never thought were possible, regardless of your age. Well, I love, you know, you're talking about rap. It reminds me of a student who brought in at the time, it was a Macklemore song that had, and they, basically they took some Shakespearean language and put it into, um, I'm going to pop some tags into a yeah. sonnet, you know, and it was awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, that was a way to sort of, as you say, break through the stuffiness of the old white guys right. and, and to say, hey, you could still write a sonnet if you wanted to. Doesn't mean you have to be exactly. limited, you know, by form. That's not the point. The point is, Exactly. This goes on, right? As as you've said, yeah. and now it's more accessible than ever. I wondered if you would take us out with a poem of your own. Yeah, thinking about <laughs> the like political nature of poetry. This is one that I just call Black Lives Matter. Black people have been walking, been walking, been walking, waiting for the time when they'd be seen as equals. Waiting, wait in the water. Wait in the water, children, wait in the water. We've got to trouble the water. I say we've got to trouble the water. Well, the time came and went, but history, his story, forgot about us, forced us to take up the back seat for the sake of his story. But our story is hard to forget, for it is woven into the fabric of this country, bleeding through the star-spangled banner held up by the slaves who were forced to build this land but never be a part of it, fighting to be loved, to be respected, to be heard, fighting to be rewritten back into textbooks. But what is America without blues, jazz, Miles Davis, Ma Rainey, Billie Holiday, or B.B. King? What is literature without Lorraine Hansberry's A Raisin in the Sun? Langston Hughes reminding us that I too sing America. Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes are watch- were Watching God, not understanding how it feels to be colored me, colored in when it's popular, colored out when it's uncomfortable. As an attempt to erase America's tainted past, revising history, slavery, gone. Cesar Chavez, gone. Trail of Tears, gone. Therefore, no reparations or apologies are needed. But the remnants of these erased pasts bleeds through the crack, bleeds through the cracks, fogging up the rose-colored history painted neatly in our textbooks, creating language that divides us like a physical barrier, pitting us against one another like chess. The first one to take the other pieces, leaving them destitute wins. Dear America, I'm sorry that you could not see the beauty that color brings to the right to a rainbow or the red, white, and blue flag we so proudly wave. Color adds life. Color provides substance. Color cannot be ignored. We cannot be ignored. So I am done fighting to be heard, to be loved, to be respected. Done prostrating myself so you feel safe around me. 
Then tiptoeing around issues of race and inequality, pretending that all lives matter. Then letting your history define me as less likely to succeed. Today, I will tell my story on my terms in my voice, and I will show others how to do the same. Thank you. Thank you so much for bringing that to our audience. It's amazing to me still in 2021 that this fight that you described continues. And you articulated so well. A lot of that fight is just in basic education, right? Getting stories Mm -hmm. into textbooks of all things. Mm -hmm. And this concept that people don't understand, education evolves. And it's not just about the histories of old white people or the literature of old white guys, for instance. So many people, at least it's portrayed in the media, seem to have a lot of trouble with that. It's like media pundits or observers describe it as some kind of psychic break. And Mm -hmm. I saw this meme today and it was like the person was talking essentially about what is it that is so hard for people to get used to? Because the narrative is that white people are struggling with this landscape of change right now. And it's like, okay, there's two guys on a wedding cake and brown people have moved into your neighborhood. Get over it. It's 2021, right? Why are we still stuck so far in the past? Is it because so much media is controlled by people who are not people of color? Yes, and it goes back to the narrative, what America is and what America is not. So from the beginning of thinking about the founding fathers, and I'm saying that lightly, or the pilgrims, and and we call them pioneers that came over to America and essentially colonized America. They didn't free it. They didn't discover it. There were already indigenous people here, but we call them colonizers and we call the people that were already here, the, the people that needed to be gone, right, to be getting rid of, that they were in the way. Um, and that, and then you have, you know, that that narrative of slavery, of, of what that did and how that changed, how we look at people of color and how we label them, how we create inequalities. And so it's this question, there's a, a I was giving a talk about Black history one day, um, and there was a student that raised his hand and said, like, you know what, I really just think Black history is something that Black people made up to feel, to make themselves feel better. Jeez. Because if all of these stories were true about these inventors and these kings and these, you know, um, these things that you so-called invented and accomplished, why aren't they in our history books? And that is the question not whether or not these stories are true, but why aren't they in your textbook? And that is the narrative. He who controls the narrative controls all. And that is the reason why we have such a hard time of dealing with otherness about race and about inequality, because we have built this narrative that America is the land of the free, the home of the brave. We freed people, we give people the choice and the freedom to come and pull themselves up by their bootstraps and be everything. And even though that is a big part of it, we also leave out all of the voices that help make that dream possible. This dream that we have today possible. And that is the problem, that those voices are not being heard. Their stories are not included or they're included as Latinx history, African-American history, Irish-American history, Asian-American history, Native American history. Instead of saying, this is American history, all of these stories created who we are today. And without any single one of those, we would not be where we are today. And that is the problem. Until we can tell the whole complete story as a united picture, we will continue to have problems because other people feel like their story is power and and their story is the only story and everyone else's doesn't matter. 
Well, so, I, I, and it starts in our schools. <laughs> absolutely. And I'm so thankful to be talking to a teacher. And I love how you articulated in your poem the historical importance of blues and jazz, for instance, because those mm-hmm. are uniquely American things, right? Mm-hmm. And when a lot of people say, well, America doesn't really have a history, it's a history of, you know, people moving from a bunch of different places and taking their cultures and bringing it to America. America is doesn't really have a culture. But those are two pretty important cultural things that did originate from America, blues and jazz. And, from the black community. And from the black community, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Dr. Tamika Sanders, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and sharing your perspective, talking about Savvy Penn and also your wonderful poem. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And and I loved being a part of the show. Looking forward to the rest of of what you do. And thanks for giving all the poets that you have featured on the episode this chance to just share and have people listen. You can find out more about Dr. Sanders on our website at word.kjzz.org. Portions of Word have been nominated for an Edward R. Murrow Award and a Public Media Journalists Association Award. If you're already a member of KJZZ, thanks so much for your support. If not, it's easy to become one by clicking on the Donate tab at kjzz.org. Please consider a gift of $10, $20, maybe even $50 a month to support public radio news, reliable information, and thoughtful discussion on podcasts like this. Whatever is in your budget, though, is the right amount. I'm Tom Maxidon, and thanks so much for listening. Word. Word? Word. What's the word? Thanks for listening to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts.